0: While pilgrims might seem like an artifact from the Middle Ages, modern-day pilgrims of all stripes still light candles in holy places. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're looking at two of Europe's top destinations for people including a spiritual dimension in their travels.
1: There's a saint in Italy almost in every town.
0: Colleen Heater will join us in a moment to explore pilgrim sites and shrines in Italy. And we'll check in with Roberto Becchi in Siena to find out why he's excited about efforts to restore more of the ancient pilgrim trail from England to Rome.
2: Yeah, we should meet in the roads and not pass each other like we do today.
0: We'll also meet an unlikely pilgrim from Germany, comic Hape Kerkeling,
3: who spent a month walking across Spain on the Camino de Santiago. Well, what makes the way so interesting is that it's not a normal walk, so you won't encounter normal tourists, but pilgrims, and they're searching for something. A Pilgrim's Inspiration in Italy and
0: Spain. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Modern-day pilgrims are traveling to find inspiration from ancient sites and religious shrines. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear from a German who took a month off from being a comedian in Germany to hike the increasingly popular pilgrim route from France all the way to Santiago de Compostela in Spain. Let's start with Colleen Heater. She and her husband have traveled to dozens of religious pilgrim sites in Italy to learn the story behind them and to find their own inspiration. Colleen joins us from her hometown of Nevada City, California. Colleen, thanks for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Now, it must be interesting for you when you're traveling to see life-changing kind of places, places just bursting with wisdom and watching people skirt right by them without hardly noticing.
1: And that's one reason why we wrote the books also, is we saw a lot of people who are religious tourists and not necessarily pilgrims where they just come and see the sights and take pictures and leave and they don't really take advantage of the power of the place.
0: Now, you and your husband, James, uh, were, were longtime yoga teachers, and back in 1988, you got married, went on a honeymoon to Italy, and the, the trip sort of morphed into a pilgrimage Italy trip. Did you set out to, to lace together all the pilgrimage sites, or how did that happen?
1: Well, while we, re- we were researching the pilgrimage to Italy, we realized there weren't many guides for people who wanted to plan their own pilgrimages. And so we decided, well, let's just take the information and see if we create a book. And we went back another time and visited 35 shrines in Italy. And we created the first Pilgrims' Italy, and then we followed it up with the Pilgrims' France.
0: And you're working on books to India and Spain as we speak.
1: Right. A more personal book is we're doing Yogananda's India. We're basically following in the footsteps of Paramahansa Yogananda in India. And then we will do the Pilgrims' Spain.
0: Now, what is the practical value of—let's take your guidebook of Pilgrims' Italy. What's the practical value of this book to— The non-pilgrim traveler, I mean, why should somebody even take this kind of travel seriously?
1: Well, if somebody is spiritually inclined, they might be traveling to some location in Italy or France and look up uh, what saints might be there, what spiritual sites. We have uh, how to meditate with the saints in the back to go a little deeper in the experience of the site, and they could just try it out on their regular travels instead of just a strict pilgrimage. So there's many ways to do it.
0: So you write in your book, While on Pilgrimage, saints become not just our destination, but our guides. If you're quiet and calm enough, you can meditate not on the saints, but with the saints. Their very thoughts and inspiration becomes our own.
1: Yeah, and that's why we recommend practicing before you go, so that it's very hard in some, especially in Italy, uh, the shrines can be very noisy, and Italians have a hard time uh, not talking and even the signs of silencio, the Italians, it doesn't seem to apply to them. So it can be a very noisy experience in some of these shrines.
0: I noticed in your book, calling you even list a place for quiet and meditation in each site so you can get away from the the um, hubbub.
1: And even in St. Peter's uh, in Rome, which is a huge basilica, there's a wonderful side chapel that enforces silence, uh, and you can go in there and pray after you've visited all the sites in St. Peter's. So practically every basilica and church and sacred site has a quiet place to meditate. Well,
0: it's quite easy to go there as a tourist and think, ah, there's nothing going on here, it's just a bunch of noisy tour groups looking for postcards and photographs and uh, marveling at uh, the statues. And at the same time, there's a parallel world, and it might be low-key, it might be fragile, or it might be more robust, but there's a parallel world of people who are there, locals and travelers as well, who came there to worship, because to them that's an important spot.
1: Right, and actually, as a tourist, you need to remember that when you're visiting these ancient basilicas for the art and the history, that you really want to be aware that people are praying there, and the local people do use it as a sacred place to meditate and pray. And uh, usually, sometimes you have to be brave and look around the basilica and find other places that you can visit or ask about them. Are there quiet places to meditate? And sometimes there's beautiful gardens that you can go to and meditate, and sometimes Mm -hmm. there's rooms that the saint might have lived in.
0: You know, I find that people who work at churches are sometimes, it's easy to think that they're rude to tourists, but if you're there to worship... They're there to help you, and they will find a way for you to get the, the peace and quiet you need and, and so on. Now, you've been all over Italy um, meditating on the message of these saints and so on. Um, I mean, it's like the, the saints become your guides, and uh, their very thoughts and inspiration become your own. Do the saints actually have a different personality that you get into when you're in this or that saint's town?
1: Well, that's why I love reading about the saints, because they're as varied in their personalities as we all are, and you can usually find a saint that you relate to. They've come from all different backgrounds, from rich and poor. Some of them are really intelligent, and some of them aren't so intelligent, but they all have a love for God and live their lives for God, and that's the common ground between them all, but some of them have very interesting stories and have you know, not always been holy from birth. They've lived worldly lives and then became a saint along the way. So you can find inspiration from almost any saint. Someone can.
0: I remember reading in your book that your, your basic appreciation of this started in Assisi. There's something about Assisi, the home of St. Francis, that, that it just emanates spirituality. And I've seen people who are not spiritual at all get caught up in it when they're in Assisi. What is it about Assisi.
1: Well, St. Francis lived there and St. Clair, and there's many locations that pertain to them, and it's a wonderful little walled city that, even just for the general tourist, it's a beautiful place to go, but for the spiritual tourist, there are so many locations that you can really commune with St. Francis and St. Clair. I'll give you an example, in San Damiano, which is where Christ first talked to St. Francis and said, rebuild my church. Uh, It's about a mile outside of Assisi. And I was praying in the little chapel there to St. Francis and to St. Clair. And it was a very moving experience for me because I actually felt their purity. Sometimes there's no words for these experiences, but it was very profound.
0: Now, St. Francis is a little more accessible to a lot of people who are not experts at connecting with saints. wasn't Francis and his uh, gang known as jugglers of God or something like that? They were just the merry uh, preachers.
1: Yeah, I think Saint Francis is depicted as being uh, pretty austere sometimes, but I think he did have a joyful spirit, and that came from his communion with God, his love for God. And I always like to find images of Saint Francis where he's smiling. They're usually he's very serious, and I perceive him as a very joyful spirit.
0: Now. I think it's pretty um routine to appreciate Saint Francis. You've done a lot of traveling. Tell us about a personal experience you've had with a saint that was surprisingly meaningful to you and you just stumbled onto it because you had to been you were traveling and open to this.
1: So many places are a surprise, actually. And uh Saint Clair of Montefalco, which is outside of Assisi also. We drove there one time and we had had really strong cappuccinos before we left and we got there and we literally couldn't meditate. We were buzzing so much and so we came back at another time and we felt uh, very spiritually affected by the place and then a nun came out and told us that did we want to see this other room where uh, she lived and we went in there and it was a very special, these are the kind of things we mention in our books that you wouldn't know unless you hung out in the uh, shrine long enough. And talked to people and found out about it. And we wouldn't have known if she didn't uh, uh, motion for us to go to this other room. And it was a very moving experience, very special, and I could really feel the saint's presence there.
0: (laughs) Wow. And that's interesting that Italy is so popular for its coffee. If you're going to be meditating, something you've learned from the School of Knox is don't drink coffee before you're going to meditate, huh?
1: Well, I wouldn't recommend it. Some people say it doesn't bother them, but uh, I think this was the strongest cappuccino we've ever had. (laughs) So it was pretty powerful.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Colleen Heater, who's written a book called The Pilgrims' Italy, and Colleen also has a book out called The Pilgrims' France. Colleen, when you're in Italy, you run across a lot of people crazy about this Padre Pio. In fact, now he's uh, San Pio, right?
1: Saint Pio, yeah.
0: Now, there's a modern-day saint, Are you able to, in your pilgrim travels, connect with modern-day saints and find the same sort of meaning? I mean, he just lived in the last generation, the same sort of meaning that if you encountered St. Clair or St. Francis.
1: That's one reason I really like uh, Padre Pio or St. Pio, is that he died in 1968. So there's actually people around who uh, knew him. And a lot of times when you read these saints, a lot of it's legend. You don't know if it's really true or not. With um, St. Pio, he, he did most of his work in the confessional and working with people who came to confession. But he was a very holy saint. He had the stigmata for 58 years, and which is the wounds of Christ. And he would read people's souls when they came to confession with him. Uh, he called them his spiritual children. He attracts 5 to 7 million pilgrims way out there in San Giovanni Rotondo, which is at the heel of the boot. So it's kind of far to go, and yet he attracts more pilgrims in the vatican does
0: my goodness now he actually lived just in the last generation and he had the stigmata yes those are the marks of the crucifixion holes in your hand and a hole and a a wound on your side and he physically had that and that is a very rare sign somebody gains when they have a powerful love of jesus is that right
1: Right. And some of the saints, uh, like St. Catherine of Siena, they were hidden, the stigmata. And then other saints, they actually bleed, and you can see uh, the wounds.
0: Fascinating. Colleen, for a lot of people who are not comfortable with saints and are not Catholic, there's this confusion of, are you worshiping the saint, or are you letting the saint help you worship God? How, How do you straighten that out for people?
1: Well, like we said, the saints become your guides. They are role models for spiritual seekers. They're like what you're striving for in your spiritual life. And they're normal humans just like everybody else, and they have achieved a level of communion with God that you want to move towards. And so you're using them as your role models.
0: So from a practical point of view, they just did it real well, and we can learn about how they lived here, lived out their mortal lives, and we can be inspired by that. Exactly. So you can prepare for your trip by reading about these saints, or you can travel and sort of incorporate it into your ongoing travel style by focusing on the saints and their teachings when you sit right there in the town where they lived and worked?
1: And there's a saint in Italy almost in every town. So uh, every time we went through, we would look and see if there was a saint there. And we found some discoveries, like on the Amalfi Coast, we just went there for vacation, but in Amalfi, there's St. Andrew's relics that are considered very holy. And also in Ravello, there was another saint there. So you can seek them out anywhere you travel in Italy.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Colleen Heater about a pilgrim's Italy, and we'll be talking with our listeners in a moment too. We've got lots more coming up on saints and pilgrimage travel in Europe.
4: Santa Maria, Santa Teresa, Santa Anna, Santa Susana, Santa
0: We're at 877-333-7425, and by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com as we place a call to Tuscany next to hear more about how Italy is a center point for pilgrim travels in Europe. We're looking at religious-themed travel today on Travel with Rick Steves, where the 21st century meets centuries-old traditions in Europe. Colleen Heater and her husband James have written comprehensive guides to religious sites in Italy and France. We'll get back to Colleen in a moment, but right now let's check in with one of my favorite tour guides in Tuscany who's been working to restore the ancient pilgrim route across Italy. We have my friend Roberto Becchi on the line from Siena, and Roberto's a a very helpful tour guide when I do my work in Siena and in that part of Italy. Roberto, welcome. Hi. How are you doing there? Pretty good. Hey, Roberto. You know, when we're in Italy, uh, Italy is called, what, the land of of a thousand bell towers or or something like that, indicating that people are very proud of their region and, and I would imagine proud of their saints. Tell us a little bit about local pride for saints in Italy.
2: Obviously, I'm from Siena, but for example, so my role model is the St. Catherine of Siena. And, and you were talking before with Colleen about St. Francis. Uh, both of those saints were, you know, really what we could call a regular people. Uh, the people feel, even if they are not, you know, religious people, even if they don't go to church every Sunday, these are two role models as people that, uh, you know, were very poor, There were certainly no aristocrats. And, uh, you know, they made their way to find uh, spirituality, to find God, but also they were a raw example for everybody else.
0: So St. Catherine's a a big saint in Siena. You know about St. Catherine, and you you use her as an inspiration or a role model.
2: Yes. For example, uh, just to have a comparison with Seattle, uh, there was a chief Seattle in America that said something very similar to what St. Catherine said which is uh, that uh, the earth where we live uh, is not heritage from our fathers. It's a loan from our children. And she said that in the 14th century, so, Mm. you know, a very touching person.
0: Yeah, now, Robert, uh, just between you and me here, uh, how many times do you go to uh, Mass in a year, would you estimate?
2: I go to Mass uh, every Sunday, but uh, my wife is Presbyterian, so I go to uh, a different church.
0: Oh, you go to a Presbyterian church in Siena.
2: Well, it's, it's a Valdesian a church.
0: Valdesian That's uh, like Methodist, no. I think, isn't it? Yeah. A Protestant church. Okay. I, I guess what I was getting at is a lot of Italians don't go to church that often, but they really are close to the saints.
2: Yes. As I was saying, as, as a role model. You took, me a to a, you
0: took me to a church, and one chapel was filled with motorcycle helmets. Yes. Tell me what that meant.
2: Basically, we call it voti. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, you just do a wish in front of a saint or, or in a very special chapel, and uh, you have somebody had an accident, or, and you want him to be saved, and so you pray, and at the end, if this person did not die uh, from a motorcycle accident or whatever, you just uh, leave it there, at the, you know, the miracle, in a way. You, your intermission succeeded.
0: So you're thankful, and you, even if you aren't a devout church-going Catholic.
2: Yes, correct.
0: Hey, Roberto, uh, you've been doing some study about the Francigena Road. Can you explain to us yes. what's that?
2: Well, the Francigena Road is a, a beautiful road that goes from Canterbury in England to Rome. The first time that we hear about this road is in the year 1994, when the Bishop Sigaric in his way back from Rome uh, to Canterbury after he was appointed as a bishop from the Pope. Okay, you're talking about
0: Canterbury, like Canterbury Tales. Uh,
2: Canterbury, sorry. Canterbury, right. England. Right. And uh, in his way back, uh, he wrote a journal, probably the first Rick Steves uh, <laughs> of the Middle Age, in a way. And uh, thank God we still have this uh, beautiful uh, diary, in a way, where he explains all his journey with all the stops and all the places that he saw in Europe at that time and today this road is a, another opportunity for us to connect with other cultures and several cities and counties created a net with the signs the directions uh, so you can come uh, and walk again in the steps of uh, Sigeric and visit the Europe in that way
0: I'm not uh, versed in this but there's the famous book Canterbury Tales right and this was all about telling the little anecdotes of being on the pilgrimage trail, hiking the Francigena Road from Canterbury all the way to Rome. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, Roberto, what's, what century was the original Canterbury Tales? The 10th century. 10th century. So a thousand, more than a 1,000 years ago, and this is inspiring people today to remember... It is. W- wow.
2: It is, because today we are so used to travel fast, like we eat fast and we travel fast. And that is the real problem. We don't meet people when we do that. The Franciscan road uh, is not just a spiritual you know, stop that you can do, but is uh, a way to meet other people.
0: So it's a slow down and smell the roses kind of travel.
2: Yeah, we should meet in the roads and not pass each other like we do today.
0: Colleen, that sounds like an interesting uh, new angle on uh, Pilgrims' Italy.
1: Well, we have included the ancient pilgrimage routes in Italy in our revised edition. And these ancient pilgrimage routes are being revived all over Europe. And uh, in France, they're reviving them. And they're also um, called cultural routes, where they're doing it for the history, for the wine. People want to get out and experience. They do want to get out of their cars and really experience the countryside, the people. It's a whole revival with these routes.
0: You know, perhaps the granddaddy of these roads is the Camino de Santiago, which goes from basically from Paris to northwest Spain to Santiago de Compostela. And I'll never forget being on the square in Santiago and seeing these pilgrims come on after their weeks-and-weeks-long hike, finally arrive on the square and look up at the Cathedral of Santiago and step on that scallop shell and look at the Cathedral of St. James, and they're just overcome by joy. And not all of them are like Christian pilgrims. A lot of them are just seekers, and they're out there like Robert was talking about to just slow down and and connect with, with the world and connect with people. I think the very first guidebook ever written uh, guided uh, pilgrims through uh, medieval Europe from Paris to Santiago de Compostela.
1: And they crisscross across all of Europe And there's a new one also in Italy for the Rieti Valley or the Sacred Valley. It's called the Camino di Francesco, and it's a 50-mile path that stops at eight places related to St. Francis. And they have an excellent website, and it just started, I think, in 2003. So they're being revived everywhere.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Colleen Heater, who writes The Pilgrims' Italy, and Roberto Becchia, a friend and tour guide, is on the phone with us from Siena in Italy. And... Tim's on the phone in Maui from Hawaii. Hi, Tim. Thanks for your call.
5: Hello there. Um, we had been in Italy last uh, fall, Septemberish, and just in wandering around, we had wandered into the uh, cathedral in Amalfi, and I didn't really know it, but in the tour, it's a one-way tour, and you end up going down a, a set of stairs into the crypt of St. Andrew. And I, I don't know how many people have actually heard of it or been there, but oh, my... It is an incredible room filled with frescoes and columns and statues, and in the middle of it, there's the giant statue of St. Andrew up on an altar, and underneath it, of course, is the crypt. And it was one of those kind of places where there was maybe a dozen people in the room, and it just really hit me as as a, a... I was just awestruck, and... Later on in the trip, we had gone into the Basilica St. Peter and up in Venice, and they just didn't have that same impact because they were lots and lots of people. And so, hmm. I don't know, I just thought that was, was one of those kind of places.
0: And you have that X-shaped cross, right, that recalls it, how he was crucified. Exactly. Yeah. Colleen, have you, you've, I'm sure you've been to the Amalfi and the Crypto. Yeah,
1: and, and that one we accidentally discovered also and we put it in the book because we found it a powerful place also.
0: It's amazing to think that one of uh, Christ's apostles would be nestled there in uh, a little town of Amalfi, reminding us that it was a surprise. Amalfi uh, was a humble town today, but it was a maritime power a thousand years ago, so it got its big time relics.
1: He talks about Venice, and St. Mark's is really a museum at this point. You have to pay to get in, and then you have to pay again to see this uh, rude screen behind uh, St. Mark's crypt. And everybody's filing past his crypt, and there's no signage. You don't know if that's really St. Mark or not. And so we stopped, my husband and I, and actually closed our eyes and meditated on St. Mark and received an incredible blessing. And we realized that nobody really knows that St. Mark is there. It operates more as a museum now. So that was a surprise also.
2: In the Francigena Road, there are a lot of little churches, which maybe don't have the fresco uh, painted by the famous artists like uh, in uh, Amalfi or in Siena or in uh, San Marco. But uh, they, they are still very spiritual places. And there, for sure, uh, you can find uh, less tourists that you know disturb meditation.
0: That's a real key if you want to be quiet and focused is to get away from the tourist traps. I mean, it, it must be very frustrating in the more famous churches to be just overrun by tour groups. Correct. All right. Hey, Tim, thanks for your call. Thank you. And we have Matt on the line in Renton, Washington. Matt, thanks for your call.
6: You bet. Well, I had a really uh, amazing experience of enjoying the kindness of a stranger in Assisi a few years ago. My wife and I were taking a trip. It was a pretty well-planned trip to Italy, and Assisi was the centerpiece of the trip. And when we showed up at the Basilica of St. Francis to take an English-speaking tour, we discovered we were there on the wrong day for the English-speaking tour, either Uh, we had read the schedule wrong or it had changed, who knows. And uh, we were very disappointed because the next day we were leaving town before we could catch the next day's uh, tour. And uh, the woman who was working at the ticket counter called over a a Franciscan friar who just happened to be walking through the lobby and explained our situation to him. And he said, well, I'll I'll do it, no problem. So he was a a friar from Denmark. He was there kind of on his own pilgrimage, but he spoke English very well. Uh, Theodore was his name. He took us on a very long tour of the Basilica, explained all the frescoes in such incredible, revealing, meaningful detail. My wife was actually in, in tears at one point just hearing his descriptions of the artwork and the stories that they told. And then afterward, we we felt that we wanted to repay him somehow, so we invited him to come and have coffee with us and continue to talk. And he said that St. Uh, that Francis always taught that you should never turned down a gift. And so he was, uh, he was happy to join us. And we had a a continued just an amazing conversation with him over coffee at a little cafe nearby.
0: You know, those Franciscan monks inject such a a spirit of joy and and happiness in Assisi. I think everybody who goes to Assisi who has a chance to connect with the monks has that experience. A lot of times, people who aren't comfortable with the Catholic tradition oftentimes find the monks a little bit off-putting, but every time I connect with those monks, I find they're just very welcoming and, and very helpful. You know, I was there filming our public television show and we had to come at 7 o'clock in the morning before it opened to the public and uh, several of the brothers were waiting for us and we got there and it was a big, kind of mm, a little stressful to bring our camera into this one of these greatest basilicas on earth and see if they're going to let us shoot what we want to shoot. And they stood very sternly before me and they said, we've read your books. And I thought, oh, no, because, you know, in my books, I call relics like the, the ruby red slippers. I say they get you home. And I was talking about trying to be a little bit flip and fun about the Catholic heritage. They said, we've read your books, and we like the way you teach St. Francis. <laughs> and they let us in, and then they took us around. And we were so royally treated there, and it just was a beautiful experience to be able to bring the, the camera into the Basilica of St. Francis with those Franciscan monks.
1: Meeting the religious people is a really sweet way to travel because we have found in France and Italy that they really are sweet and they add that to your travels.
0: They really do. And the key is for travelers to realize that um, it's not a tourism, are you going to pay admission, are you going to buy a postcard thing. These are monks. Their life's work is, and these are church people, their life's work is to keep this place of worship alive and vibrant, and they're thrilled you're there, especially if you're there thoughtfully and you, you want to be, to whatever degree, a pilgrim. Uh, Julie's on the phone in St. Paul, Minnesota. Julie, thanks for your call.
7: Thank you, Rick. I just want to say that the travels that I've had the opportunity to take with my church choir and then those uh, experiences in actual churches, being able to sing um, informal concerts where we just walk in and set up and sing for 15 minutes or, or give a concert have been the most rewarding experiences of our lives.
0: You hit something right on the nail there, Julie. I've done that with some of my groups where there's a, a a large family that loves to sing, and they just grab the opportunity and they fill the place with music, and it's it it it, it just enlivens it, doesn't it?
7: It does, and and the individuals that are you know also in that space at the time we're singing, get a whole nother level of experience themselves without even expecting
2: it or planning it.
0: Roberto and and Siena, yes. any thoughts on that? What if a group yes, of music loving.
2: A a few years ago, I organized a a beautiful tour uh, for the high school, uh, Bethlehem High School in Pennsylvania, and we did uh, uh, the same thing that your listener was saying. We did concerts uh, all over Italy, and we did it in in beautiful churches, but also we did it in uh, little tiny churches where the local people never heard uh, an American choir, uh, you know, singing, And, and it was a beautiful moment again. Uh, because there was a a meeting point there between the local people and those students. You know, everybody wins when that happens. Everybody Uh, wins. The real spirit of traveling is when you meet people.
0: I've been in humble churches in the middle of nowhere in Italy when a group of students uh, who are part of a musical group from Poland or Slovenia come in. They sing, the tourists sit down, and the whole place is filled with joy. Colleen.
1: Yeah, I also want to say that um, not only the acoustics of these churches are wonderful for uh, singing, but a lot of the sites themselves have been built over powerful energy centers. Um, a lot of them, like Chart and Sopra Minerva in Rome, have been built over ancient temples. So sometimes just the magnetic energy of the spot is very high, and then you have the saint that is contributing, and then all the pilgrims' prayers, it all adds to the power of the place.
7: We had the chance to sing in the Sistine Chapel just before opening for 15 minutes, and security guards came in and stood. We had our children there with us. It was a monumental moment, and we were able to then repeat that in a very small church in Corsica that we sang a joint choir concert with, their community choir, and the church was packed. People were outside the church and then gave us a cheese and homemade wine celebration after, and it was magnificent.
0: Great way to connect. Hey, uh, uh, Julie, thanks for your call. Thank you. That's beautiful. Roberto, thanks for joining us from Siena.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Ciao. Ciao. (laughs) Ciao. And Colleen Heater, thank you so much. Uh, We've been talking with Colleen Heater about her book, *The Pilgrims' Italy, Boy, it just seems to me that travel, like life in general, it's a a struggle to find a balance between our inner spiritual lives and the outer material ones. And it seems like when you're traveling, whether you like it or not, you're going to bump into some saints, and uh, it can add to your travel experience.
1: You might as well try it. It's also, pilgrimage is a thrifty way to travel, which everybody's concerned about money these days. And staying in monasteries and convents is low cost, and also the sacred sites are free admission. And so it's a a wonderful way to stay in the vibration of the saints. And I want to mention two places as an example of that. La Verna in Tuscany, about 70 miles um, out of Assisi, St. Francis was gifted this small mountain for seclusion, and it's here that he he received the stigmata. And you can actually stay inside this monastery, and it's a very powerful, special place. And also in France, in Neve, St. Bernadette, the last 13 years of her life, she lived in this convent, and her reliquary is there. And you can stay in this place. It has about 200 rooms. It's very huge. Where in the day, it's very busy in her chapel. And at night in the early morning, you can go down and visit her. You can have this special time with St. Bernadette. So staying in monasteries and convents is a wonderful way to travel.
0: Colleen, you know, a lot of people go to church. A lot of people don't. Some people believe in God. Some people don't. If you're at all spiritual, regardless of how much you're into organized religion, it seems like you can inject a little bit of focus into the spiritual nature of travel, and it makes the travel itself a richer and more rewarding experience.
1: Thank you. And, and also, the true essence of pilgrimage is always centered in one's own heart, no matter where you travel.
0: I suppose your meditating skills are critical in that regard.
1: Yeah, it helps to practice stilling your mind and opening your heart to the blessings of the saints.
0: Best wishes with your work. We'll look forward to seeing your book coming out on in India.
1: Oh, thanks so much.
0: Next, tell us your stories of walking the pilgrim trail to Santiago de Compostela at 877-333-RICK. It's travel with Rick Steves. For over a 1,000 years, pilgrims have hiked from all corners of Europe to the remote northwest corner of Spain to Santiago de Compostela. It's called the Camino de Santiago, Many travelers are doing that today. It's had a uh, a resurgence in interest. Typically, travelers uh, hike the last 500 miles or so from the French border to Santiago de Compostela. 100,000 travelers, pilgrims, did this hike last year. I was just there with my backpack and did a little bit of the hike and uh, was inspired by all the people who were really committed to spending a month hiking 500 miles from the Pyrenees to Santiago de Compostela. Today, we're joined by a German writer, a German pilgrim, a German comedian, Uh, Hoppe Kerkeling. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Hoppe.
3: Hello. Nice talking to you, Rick.
0: Hoppe has written a book called I'm Off Then, and I understand you wrote it a few years ago, Hoppe, in German, and and right now it's available in English. Fascinating book, and if we could start our interview by you just reading for me how you concluded the book. The last
3: two paragraphs on page 332, please. Okay, here we go. The Creator tosses us into the air and then to our happy amazement catches us again at just the right moment. It is like the spirited game parents play with their children. The message is, have faith in the one who's tossing you because he loves you and will quite unexpectedly be the one to catch you too. And when I think back on all that has happened along the way, I realize that God kept tossing me into the air and catching me again. We encountered each other every single day. Now, I understand you're quite a
0: edgy crass comedian on TV and you finish a book with something so spiritual and, and so deep. This journey that people are making is is quite a powerful experience. Tell us, Hapé, how many days, how many kilometers, uh, what was the, the the basic parameters of your uh, of your journey?
3: Well, it took me about uh, four weeks, four and a half weeks for the 500 miles. And to tell you the truth, Rick, I didn't walk all the way. I once took a bus, I once hiked, But let's say the last 330 miles of the way, I really kept on going just with my backpack. And I did it because I needed to recover from a gallbladder movement, which I had before. And I thought it would be a good idea not to go on a normal vacation uh, and just uh, reflect about my life and what I had done until that very point. And so I decided to go on the Camino de Santiago, which is the old pilgrim's uh, route in Europe.
0: Now, you went alone. T- talk about being alone in the, in the vastness of northwest Spain.
3: Well, at the very beginning, that was very hard because I didn't think that the biggest obstacle I would come across on the street would be me. You have to deal a lot with yourself, and it took me some time, at least two weeks, to get along with myself and, and feel at ease. In fact, you mentioned in your book, Hoppy, that each day
0: was sort of structured like the entire pilgrimage itself. What did you mean by that?
3: It felt as if I didn't do just one pilgrimage, but a thousand pilgrimages in, in, in six weeks. Because every day kind of had the same structure. You have to get up and, and struggle, find your pace, find your rhythm. Then you're on the way, then you get tired. Even though every day is different from the other one, there is a certain pattern that repeats itself every day. And I believe that these patterns can also be found in our very lives.
0: Now, in your book, you made a a point to have an insight of the day every day.
3: To tell you the truth, Rick, I I didn't think about it when I was writing my diary on the trip because I simply uh, kept the diary for one reason, because my guide told me to do so. It was written that it might be uh, quite boring also and you might feel lonely. So the only communication I had was uh, with my diary. So this is why I kept the diary. And when I was rewriting it before it was published, I kind of realized that there was an essence of the day every day. So Hmm. I tried to figure out what was the essence. And, in fact, there was a lesson learned every day.
0: Hapé, you mentioned you cheated. I mean, a lot of people are purists about this. You know, they've got to walk the whole way and they stay in these very rustic huts along the way. You were staying in nice hotels and and catching a train here and there. Did that take away from the validity of the experience for you? I don't
3: think so. Um, I do know that... Um, Orthodox pilgrims might think that the cheating is not okay, but you have to do the last 90 miles to have done the pilgrimage so I think it's okay and as I was quite exhausted when I started the Camino and I'm overweight I was then and I'm still now so it took me some effort to get myself on the way so I thought after six hours or eight hours of heavy walking I wouldn't have to sleep in these sleeping rooms with 25 people and one shower and one toilet so I decided to sleep in a bed and breakfast and encounter the other pilgrims during the day during my pilgrimage. That was my way of doing it, and as I believe that everyone should be, well, his own individual, so that was my Mm. way of being individual.
0: Well, that makes sense. And uh, you've sort of proven that you don't need to be a great hiker to do this trip, apparently.
3: To tell you the truth, I was quite astonished that you don't have to be that well-trained to do it. The only thing that counted for me was... uh, kind of um, your spirit towards the thing. And Mm -hmm. and as this spirit grew by doing the walking, I, I realized that it's more important to be in the right mood to just face the walk.
0: Now, you know, that spirit is really impressive. I was just there a couple of months ago. I was touring. I wasn't doing the Camino, but I would cross these Pilgrims And anybody with a backpack, I would say, I bet they're a pilgrim, and I'd look behind them and they'd have one of those uh, scallop shells of St. James jangling yeah. on their back. What was your gear?y Did you have the traditional staff and shell and all that?
3: Well, of course, I did have the shell and I had the backpack and realized after a couple of days that I had brought too many things with me. You have to change your clothes every day and that's it, so you need... Uh, uh, two shirts, maybe, and and that's it. And I brought too many things with me, so what I did, I threw away a couple of things to uh, make my backpack less heavy. So when you go there, bring just the essentials, and that's it.
0: Part of the whole experience is proving that you don't need all the material comforts, I suppose.
3: Absolutely, and it's also kind of uh, a feeling of, of freedom. If there is only the essentials, and all the rest lacks, because it gives you a feeling of great, well, self-confidence and and you feel at ease with just the essentials. We have an
0: email from Diane in Alexandria, Virginia, and Diane writes, uh, she did the Camino last year with the 12- and 14-year-old daughters, one of the favorite experiences of a two-month Europe trip. They used medical facilities en route because of bug bites at the mountain huts. On your experience, Hoppe, did you ever need to go to the doctor or, or was there those facilities along the way?
3: Well, I, I didn't have to go to the doctor, but my experience was with if someone needed a doctor or a nurse, uh, they, in a way, like a miracle, appeared on the way. So if you needed help, there always was help. I wouldn't call it a miracle, but at least it was a strange coincidence.
0: I imagine Chaucer did a, a pilgrimage similar to what you did back in the Middle Ages, and he met a whole series of people fascinating enough to write his Canterbury Tales. Did you meet interesting people along the way that sort of carbonated
3: the experience? Well, what makes the way so interesting is that it's not a normal walk, so you won't encounter normal tourists but pilgrims, and they're searching for something. And it doesn't matter whether they are atheists, because there are also uh, pilgrims not believing in God, Buddhists, Catholics, or whatever. Everyone is searching for something. So when you meet these people in the loneliness of the scenery, you can immediately talk to them in depth. And that is really what it makes so special. And so every day you have weird encounters, nice encounters, and and you learn lessons you might have never have heard of before. And that was, to me, the most amazing and beautiful thing on the way. So there was an
0: ambience or an atmosphere where people talked about meaningful things because everybody was uh, trying to better understand their lives and their relationship uh, with their creator. Is that the deal?
3: I think so, because sometimes you walk across the streets and you may think about the essential things of life, what is going to happen, what is going to happen when I die, but you wouldn't dare to talk to strange people about it if you're in the shopping mall. But mm. if you're on the Camino de Santiago, you just can stop a person and say, you know what I'm busy with at the very moment, and they would listen to you and maybe also deliver a, a good answer. Wow. So you write
0: in your book, this is a chance to contemplate life's big questions. Everybody's different. You're you're quite an interesting person. You're a gay comedian, lapsed Catholic, and
3: you're German. Did you That's a combination. <laughs> Isn't that a That's combination? That's a funny combination. I've never thought about it, but now hearing you say it, it's very funny. <laughs> yeah, cuz Germans have a
0: certain sort of baggage, gay people, lapsed Catholics and comedians. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a communist though. <laughs> no, of course not. But I mean, the point is we all have big questions in our lives and we can't talk about them at the mall. Yeah. If you had a one month opportunity to be free with other people who were free to explore the meaning of life,
3: Yes, I felt it was quite a luxurious experience. My expectations were very high. I kind of expected to, at the end, find myself completely illuminated and my life changed totally. Of course, this did not happen. But what happens is tiny little things. You find yourself at a certain point in a wheat field and and you figure out you have to cry. And at the same time, you're laughing about you don't know what. And you're walking through... A process of your own emotions, a cathesis of your own emotions, and that's a a very sublime experience and process, and it takes some time before it, it starts. You know, I've been
0: wondering, when people struggle to know God, whether it's in a spiritual sense or an organized religious sense, if first you don't need to know yourself, did you think about that much on your pilgrimage?
3: at the very beginning, as I told you, I had very high expectations and I thought, well, I want to find God, but didn't realize that the biggest obstacle between me and God was myself. So um, I kind of felt that it was necessary to think about my own, let's call it the dark sides or the, the shadows or things I wouldn't like to think. Well, you know, everybody wants to be the nice guy. You wouldn't call yourself a bad person, but Indeed, the truth is, everyone has both of it in himself and herself, so I thought it was necessary to ponder about it, and I did. I didn't like the process, though, but it was necessary.
0: Does God like your sense of humor?
3: I hope he does. I think he has got, or he, she, it, however you may call him her or it, does have a sense of humor. Yeah, I believe so. I'm speaking with
0: Hapé Kerkeling. He's written a new book called I'm Off Then. It's actually been out in German for a while. It's been a huge hit in Germany, and now it's available in English for travelers in the United States. We've got Corrine on the phone in Manchester, Washington. Corrine, thanks for your call. Do you have a comment or a question for Hapé?
4: I don't have a question. I just wanted to say that I started this trip just as an adventure experience, and I found that what came out for me was that I'm very (laughs) goal-oriented, And I realized after the first few days that there I am trying to set miles and time. And so I realized that I needed to uh, just enjoy. And so it took me probably close to two weeks to get into the mode where I could just enjoy the experience.
3: Huh. Now, Hoppe, did it take you a
0: while to settle into that sort of proper mindset?
3: Absolutely. Pretty much like uh, Karina, it took me two weeks to get into my mood of uh, the Camino. And you have to keep on going the first two weeks because you're always tempted to give up because you don't feel well.
4: I never had that sense of wanting to give up. For me, it was like, what would it be like every morning to get up and just start walking? without Mm -hmm. knowing what your destination was, without knowing the terrain, just to have that unknown experience every day, and I found it just to be fabulous. Now,
0: has that stayed with you, Corrine? Has it been given you sort of a souvenir that keeps on uh, uh, giving?
4: You can never get rid of that memory of having that energy flow as you walk the Camino. It's as if you're walking with 2,000 years of energy. And, yes, Mm -hmm. that memory stays with me and the daily experience of, enjoying every moment. It's a whole different way of seeing your life.
0: What a radical way to spend a month on vacation. This is very inspirational. Thank you, Corinne. You're welcome. Ellie is on the phone in Seattle, Washington. Ellie, you just did the Camino recently. Tell us about your experience.
8: Oh, uh, we went uh, with no expectations at all. We didn't go for spiritual reasons. We went for the adventure. As we Kept going along and along with it. Uh, I think the spiritual aspect of it came in quite clear. Uh, We enjoyed it. It took us 32 days. Um, And by the way, we're seniors. My husband's 70. And uh, I just want to say anyone can go. It it doesn't matter what your age is. You know, it was just a wonderful experience. I I recommend it for everyone. There is hardly a day that goes by that we don't talk about it. We don't reflect on it and bore everyone to death with our (laughs) experience (laughs) of it. (laughs) Uh, The experience of going into Santiago, the cathedral, it was wonderful. The people we met, we wouldn't see them for days, then meet up with them again. Um, The average age, I would say, is 20 to 30 years old. Uh, We were definitely the oldest ones on the trail. Um, People got lost. Um, people had hard times. People quit. It was amazing how many young people just walked away from it. And like Karina says, we didn't even think of giving up. I would have crawled if I would have had to, to get in to Santiago. It was wonderful.
0: Did you have a, some kind of a guidebook? I noticed there were guidebooks printed for you. Yeah, the...
8: we did. It, actually, it came from England, and it had maps. It was small. We were able to... Right. Uh, take it in our packs, which, by the way, your packs have to be down to about 10 pounds. And we started sending things home. I gave my sleeping bag away. I mean, you know, you just, every day that pack was on your back. So you're very conscious of what is in it. So we kind of tried to stick to the day schedule, which, by the way, was 15 to 20 miles a day. That's what we averaged. Uh, Mm -hmm. We got up very early in the morning, and away we went. A lot of people got lost because you have way markers, and um, and this German couple, young German couple, came by us two times. I said, "Where have you been?" And they said, "We went two or three miles out of the way." So it isn't real well marked in some areas, so you have to be very, very careful. But this book we had was uh, it was great. It you know told about the little villages that we were going into, about the accommodations, which can be very, very sketchy food was wonderful, people were wonderful, the wine was wonderful. <laughs> All right.
0: Hey, Ellie, unlike, okay. a, unlike okay. a pilgrimage, we've got a time schedule here, so we've yeah. got to run along. Okay. Thank <laughs> you <laughs> a lot. Okay. I want to read an email from Sarah in Boulder, Colorado. Sarah did the Camino with a friend. Uh, she said, it only gets better as I look back on it, reading my journal and realizing what I'd learned. At Mass in the Cathedral in Santiago, so many people we'd seen throughout the way appeared once again. I discovered that meeting people who were each so different from all over the world was the best part of the trip. Living simply with few possessions is enlightening. We all want to believe we can keep ourselves safe by surrounding ourselves with all the stuff we need. But when we let that go, we learn that our relationships are the most important. Sarah recommends the command to anyone open to the experience of not knowing exactly where the road will lead, but nevertheless willing to follow it wholeheartedly. Hape, does that resonate with your experience?
3: Oh, absolutely. What, what you really learn is how to get rid of things that bother you and and just throw them away simply, might it be a thought, or things in your backpack. And what you learn as well is that you have to find your own pace. And if you want to walk with someone, you have to kind of find out his or her rhythm. And that's a good lesson for life, mm. so that you should respect your own rhythm. And of course, you must respect the pace and rhythm of another person and that was for me one of the best lessons i learned
0: now you write in your book Happy, that uh, the real camino starts after you've finished the camino de santiago exactly what did you mean by that then
3: well what i meant by it is that by the walking you kind of restructure your life and you take the pattern of the camino as your own life pattern, the way you have structured uh, every day's walk afterwards, you can structure your own life. And if, it's quite difficult to, to explain because it's a spiritual pattern, which I try to take over. And sometimes you manage better, sometimes you don't. But um, it keeps you going and it's something that will never leave you again. That's what I've experienced.
0: So the Camino experience several years later is, is still
3: vivid in your life maybe people who have been on a peak of a mountain and they might always remember the view they had from there. So this is kind of what you can recall in your mind when you think of the Camino and all the good emotions and feelings come back to you.
0: Happy Kirkling, author of I'm Off Then, Losing and Finding Myself on the Camino de Santiago. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to KVMR in Nevada City, California and the Radio Foundation in New York for their help today. And listen again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves.
6: Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His now classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Rick Steves, Italy is America's top-selling Italian guidebook. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find the guidebooks for Rome, Venice, Florence and Tuscany, and Rick's Italian phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for Italy and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.